this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's in the book of Numbers. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures or if you want to look at uh, that app, that Bible app that is available, um, then it should be there. If you happen to be online, um, again, the platform that's connected to the church's website has a section there where Scripture and everything is in it. Uh, and you can pull up Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. As we come to the end of it, as we've been doing kind of on and off, again, I'll speak. This is the word of the Lord, your response, thanks be to God, and then we'll take some moments of silence to let the passage just kind of simmer in our souls Uh, before I share some some words and some thoughts. While they were at Hezeroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. Man, wouldn't it be great if that could be said about us? So immediately the Lord called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam and said, Go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. So the three of them went to the tabernacle. Then the Lord descended in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. Aaron and Miriam, he called, and they stepped forward. And the Lord said to them, sorry, Now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So our Methodist sisters and brothers apparently have an old tradition among them. Historically, it was pretty common as they would come together in groups, these Wesleyan followers of Christ, they would come together and the first question that they would ask of one another is, how is it with your soul? Doesn't that make our how are you sound a little bit overly simplistic, kind of formulaic in comparison as we think about what often happens with that? We ask that question as we come into this room together or we see each other in other places and we say, oh, how are you? And usually we're looking for some expected responses, the ones that are are normal to us, something like, oh, I'm fine. 
or I'm good, or not bad, or what seemingly has become our most common response is busy. How are you? Busy. And the reality is that so many of these answers seem to not even fully answer the question. They often come without any kind of reflection or thought. They're just the response that immediately comes out as if you said hello and I said hello back and that's all there was to it. It's common in the streets of Zambia and other places I've been in Africa to, to meet little children and to say hello and they say hello and you say how are you and they say I'm fine, how are you? Because that's what they've been taught comes after, how are you? Always the response, I'm fine, how are you? It's this repeated practice, this back and forth thing, and, and let's be honest. Quite often when we greet someone with that and we say, how are you? We don't actually care. We don't really want them to answer the question and tell us how they are. It really is a simple practice in trading how do you do's and saying, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. And moving on with whatever comes next. But it does seem to me that there is value in us, especially as the church, taking time to stop and ask intentional questions that demand introspection and reflection, that demand that we look deeper than simple answers, that we come together and that I say and that you say. So this morning, I intentionally want to ask you, I want to ask you five or six months into a pandemic, Valley, how is it with your soul. As we've wrestled with the realization of racial mistreatment and it's been highlighted in the news and in our culture, how is it with your soul? As we walk through and prepare for the realities and the ramifications of an election year, how is it with your soul? As you and I live in this place where we're overwhelmed with some questions, questions about work and what's happening with our work, questions about kids and what's happening with their schooling, questions about our family and ways in which we need to interact or not and what that means and how we take care of all the things that we're used to taking care of in the past, as all of that has been shifted and changed and moved, how is it with your soul? All of these anxieties and questions that we've had to deal with in the midst of a pandemic stretch our soul in ways that our soul is not used to being stretched. The very idea of, of quarantine or being separated from others, of, of distancing, whether we talk about that as physical distancing or social distancing, whatever that is, this idea of distancing, of being quarantined, it does something to our soul. It affects our soul in significant ways. The mistreatment of people that we've watched take place on the news, that we've seen video clips of over and over and over again, and just this week, more of those clips were released, and that those do damage to our soul. So if you and I are willing to stop and be really honest, how is it with your soul?
I shared with you last week that we were going to go back and restart a sermon series. We're going to kind of do rewind. We're going to, I called it a remix. We're going to remix a, uh, a sermon series that we began in February, having a conversation about strengthening the soul. And we got about halfway through before March came. And in March, we had to do this canceling of our public gathering. So it, it put on hold what we were doing and we stopped talking about it. We were talking about it at that point with no idea of what was coming or what was happening. We were talking about it because of the belief that the state of our souls, the strength of our souls is a core element of disciple making. And we as a church would say that we believe that disciple making is the primary reason that the church exists. We exist to make disciples. That's the work of Valley. That's the work of the, the church body. Any church body is the, the work of disciple making, of helping raise people up to grow closer and closer to Jesus and moving from knowing nothing about God through the process of being a faithful follower of Jesus. So we talk about the soul because it's a core element of that conversation. Then and now, we leaned on Ruth Haley Barton's book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And in that book, she talks about the soul, and she defines it this way. She says, your soul is the part of you that is most real. The very essence of you that God knew before he brought you forth in physical form. The part that will exist after your body goes into the ground. This is the you that exists beyond any role you play any job you perform, any relationship that seems to define you, or any notoriety or success you may have achieved. It is the part of you that longs for more of God than what you have right now. The part that may, even now, be aware of missing God amid the challenges of life. We're coming back to the conversation. We're re-entering this series and starting all over again, looking at it with fresh eyes and in a new light. One, because we didn't finish, and we believe that the conversation was important on, in the first hand, so we've come back to it because we still believe it's important. But really, primarily, the reason we are re-entering this conversation is because, that the, is because the experiences of the last several months have impacted our souls. It's impossible for that not to have been true. We have seen and experienced and lost too much over the last several months to not have been deeply changed in some way. Now, honestly, the hope would be that if we're doing things right, if we're doing things the way that we're called to as a church, if we're moving forward and pursuing God in the way in which the scriptures have called us to do so, then these times of crisis and these times of challenge ideally strengthen us. They bring out the best in us. They bring out growth in us. That's why so many writings in the scripture talk about this idea of rejoicing in difficulty, because difficulty is making of us more of what God has created us to be. That, that's, that's the hope. That's the ideal. And yet, that's not what many of us have experienced. That's not what many of us would confess. And yes, perhaps that means that we've lost sight of something or missed something along the way, but what it also highlights is the reality that so very often what happens in crisis is not that we experience growth, unless we're incredibly intentional. 
Instead, it's that crisis often brings other things out of us. It brings coping. It brings pacifying. It brings looking for the easiest and the most available way to deal with or manage the reality that things have been unsettled. Finding growth in these moments, finding growth in these crises demands that we be incredibly intentional. And for many of us, that practice of of being deeply intentional and focused and committed to Jesus and only Jesus is not something that we've had to practice enough that in the midst of this, that's what we've gone back to. Instead, we lean into what is easier and more familiar. So as we push forward, continuing into a pandemic, as we push forward with, with ongoing racial issues that are taking place, as we push forward towards an upcoming election, as we push forward into virtual schooling for most of our kids, as we push forward into many of us working from home and that being something that is unfamiliar or new for us, as we push forward into being closer to some of our family than we're used to being, And if we were honest, some of us wishing we didn't have to be so close. As we push forward into other realities of being separated from some of our family that we long to see, but it's it's risky and questionable if we should or we should interact. As we push forward into just life in general, which even in the best of times, still brings with it so many versions of crisis. As we push forward, we want to look at the state of our souls consider where we are and think about the pursuit of moving forward in what God is calling us to be. We want to look at the state of our souls and set some goals and think about some ways in which we can pursue strengthening our souls so that through this crisis that continues we can find that on the other side, we have been strengthened. We have become more faithful. We have become more deeply committed to Jesus. So our guide in the conversation will be the Old Testament story of Moses. And Barton's book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, will help influence how we look at Moses, but it's, it's Moses who's our model for this. It's Moses who is our, our guide of doing this well. Moses is one of the great Old Testament leaders, one of the great leaders of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. He was given this unimaginable task to go into Egypt and rescue all of the Israelite slaves and then take them from that place to the place that they had been promised, the land that had been promised to Abraham long before them. Generations beforehand, Moses was given this job of going and walking forward with them. And as we look at the story, we're going to see miraculous experiences that take place, and we're going to see times of great pain and difficulty. Yes, we'll even find days of wavering faith. So much more that we'll look at as we look at his story. And my desire, my intent, my hope for us is that we're able to take his story and compare his story to our own story, to look at some of the decisions that he makes along this journey in all of these crises that he deals with and the ways in which he is strengthened, the ways in which he grows more and more faithful. And that hopefully by looking at his decisions and looking at our own decisions, we can find ourselves growing closer and closer to Jesus. In Numbers 12, the passage that we read earlier, we find this interesting interaction that's taking place between Moses, his brother Aaron, and his sister Miriam. 
Apparently, the three of them had really been raised up to lead the people of Israel forward. Moses is kind of the hero of the story, the focus that it stays on, but the scriptures make it clear over and over again that, that really leadership has been placed on the three of them. They have different roles and different responsibilities, but this work is going to require all of them leading the people forward. And what we find in Numbers 12, the passage that we read, is that we find a leadership conflict taking place. These three leaders that have come together to lead are uh, not on the same page. There's conflict going on among them. We find that Aaron and Miriam are critical of the leadership decisions that Moses has made. And in this section specifically, their criticism, their, their confrontation, their rebuke has to do with Moses' wife. They didn't think much of the selection that he had made in a wife. Primarily because of her race. Very early biblical evidence for us that this historical sin of racism has existed among God's people for a long, long time. We're not going to spend time on that, but it needs to be noticed and pointed out that somehow as we seek to eradicate this sin that we recognize it's been around for a long time. So how do we move from it? We don't see a lot of time spent on that in this specific story, but God comes in and he takes the three of them and he calls them aside out of public space, out of a space where they're uh, debating what's going on in public, and he calls them into a private place and he rebukes Aaron and Miriam for the ways in which they're criticizing Moses, for the ways in which they're speaking to this leader, and then he points out what it is that makes Moses significant among them, what it is that makes Moses different in some way. And in verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. It says, of all my house, so of all the people that are the people of God, of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. Moses and God spoke face to face. Again and again in Moses' story, we'll find that Moses repeatedly sought out God, sought out being face-to-face -face with God. And what God does is that God honored Moses' desires. God honored Moses' longing to be with him by giving him this uniquely beautiful and connected relationship. This ways in which face-to-face -face they dealt with one another. And it's, and it's not because Moses was, was somehow chosen as favorite. This is not God's favoritism over Moses instead of others. Yes, Moses was called out among others. He had these experiences that others didn't have. But what we see is special about the two of them is this relationship that they had, the depth of this intentional relationship that, that required that Moses long for it, that Moses reach for it, that Moses strive for it, that Moses wanted to be face-to-face -face with God the same way that God wanted to be face-to-face -face with Moses. In Barton's book, she believes and goes so far as to say this is what she thinks his leadership stamina, his leadership acumen really came out of. She says, he did not seem to have any great strategies for leadership except to seek God in solitude and then carry out what God revealed to him there. She believes that it wasn't Moses' incredible leadership strategies that somehow gave him the ability to rise to greatness. 
but that instead what made Moses a great leader was his intimate relationship with God. Everything came out of that one truth. So as we talk about and look at the idea of strengthening our soul, as strengthening the soul that's within us, as we think about what that means and what that looks like, I think it's pivotal, it's crucial, it's imperative that we understand that we have to have these same kinds of practices with God. That silence and solitude are crucial for us to move forward at what God desires to do in our soul. It's in silence and solitude that we're able to actually discover the state of our soul. So as I ask of you, of us, of myself even, how is it with your soul? I think it's true that it's only in silence and solitude. It's only in stopping and being still and listening and looking that we're able to answer that question with any kind of honesty. It's also in this silence and solitude that we're able to determine what it is that the Holy Spirit is trying to work in us, the, the transformation of our soul that the Holy Spirit is trying to work. Through life and all of its beauties and difficulties, the Scriptures tell us that God is consistently working to recreate all of creation, but that includes us as individuals. That includes our soul. God is working to recreate our souls back to that place that we were created to be from the very beginning. In the New Testament, Jesus calls it new life or new creation, this idea of being born again. When you and I are willing to spend time alone with Jesus, time alone with the Savior, it opens up our soul for the work that the Holy Spirit longs to do in us. We can't do the work on our own. It's not about striving more or working more or giving more effort. It's about opening up our souls so that the Holy Spirit can do this work. When we're willing to be face to face with the Savior, we make it possible for God to make of us all that God has created us to be. We create space for that to happen. It's in solitude with Jesus that we can come to recognize the deepest desires of our souls. The desire to know and be known by God. The desire to love and be loved by God. It's when we're face to face with God that we find that there's little more that God wants in creation and there's nothing more than you and I want than the chance to be alone together with Jesus. And we may not even recognize that desire until we've experienced it. So it's in our choosing to be there that we come to understand how great this desire is in us. Last week, I shared a story with you about a man named Dimitri, and it came from this book by Nick Ripkin, The Insanity of God. I'm not going to go back and share all of that story, but a piece of the story that I didn't share that kind of pushes further into this story is in the, the interview that was taking place, the, the conversation that was taking place between Nick, sorry, Nick and Dimitri. He tells in the book that at one point in Dimitri sharing his story that 
Nick became so overwhelmed with what he was hearing that he kind of drifted into space, imagining all of these things taking place and thinking about what it was like and what was going on. And it's in this kind of space that he's in, not paying attention, that he recognized that Dimitri was still talking. So he brought himself back, he got his attention back, and he apologized to this man, this man who'd lived through this persecution. He apologized to him for, for, for getting distracted, for drifting off, for not hearing what it is that he had to say. And he said, no, I want, I want to hear all of your story, so would you go back and say that again because I missed it. I got distracted in my own thoughts. And according to the book, Dimitri dismissed his concerns and said to Nick, it's okay, I wasn't actually talking to you. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, when you arrived this morning, God and I were discussing something. Your visit interrupted that. So right now, when I saw that you were busy with your own thoughts, the Lord and I went back to finishing that conversation. It gives me chills every time I read or tell that story longing for this type of relationship with Jesus. It is because of this type of deep relationship with Jesus that Dimitri was able to survive 17 years in prison because of his faith. It's because of this kind of depth of relationship with Jesus, this kind of face-to-face -face time with God, this time in silence and solitude alone with the Savior, that he was able to come out more deeply in love with Jesus on the other side of 17 years in suffering. And I believe this is the kind of relationship that God has created you and me to participate in. That God longs for the same kind of interaction with us, the same kind of meeting. Moses met with God face to face. Dimitri met with God face to face. Our souls survive and are strengthened in times of crisis if we're willing to commit ourselves to the practices of silence and solitude, time alone with Jesus. If we're willing to meet with God face to face like Moses did, like Dimitri did, then God is able to make of us all that God dreams we will be. So my encouragement to you, my challenge to you this week and in the days ahead is that you would find some intentional times in your week, in your day, to be face-to-face -face with Jesus. And it doesn't have to be long and complicated. As a matter of fact, what for me is becoming the most valuable in these times is the times that I sit and just be silent with the Savior. Before as a church, we've talked about some of the emotionally healthy practices, and in both the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book and Emotionally Healthy Relationships, they have written some day-by-day -day guides that give you some space to create silence and solitude, to spend time with Jesus. And in those, they encourage two minutes of silence on the front end and a passage of Scripture, some time in prayer, a little devotional reading, and two minutes of silence on the back end. For each of us, we have to find those practices that work for us, but I think it's important that it include times of silence to listen to the Savior, time of prayer where we can have conversation with the Savior, and time in the Scriptures where we can allow the Spirit to speak with us through what Jesus is saying. And again, it doesn't have to be long. It might only be moments that we stop and recenter and we meet Jesus face to face. 
just because we can and because we long to be with the Savior. As we start this work and this conversation of strengthening our soul, this is the place where we start. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, our Savior, we ask that you would do a work in our soul. That you would bring us to a place that we could meet deeply with you. And that it would stir in us the desire that you have for us to continue to come and meet with you face to face. God, do a work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.